The reason we provide metrics on this is to provide contextual information to organizations. So every organization has to make security decisions and to prioritize those decisions on what to implement, how to implement that. And we think it's very important that the likelihood of a specific technique actually being used in an intrusion uh, should impact that decision-making process. So if we can provide data on the actual prevalence of techniques and how often we see them, those decision makers can then be better equipped to make intelligent security decisions. In the investigations that Mandiant saw in this past year, adversaries used Beacon in more than a quarter of our investigations, um, three times more than the second most frequent, which was Sunburst. We still see, even with that new data set, new kind of pool of data, we still see that Beacon is rising to the top of being a number one favorite. Now, I don't think personally that's going to change, and I think it's become very widely known within the security community that Beacon will continue to be a favorite. It's almost become a meme at this point, but you know, it's going to stay relevant as we move through the rest of our investigations to come. Attackers are just getting more clever with the way that they are able to drop the beacon backdoors with different droppers, which goes into and ties into all of that tradecraft activity and how we're tracking and clustering those threat groups. Welcome back to another episode of Mannion's Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara, and it is that time of year again where we are releasing our M-Trends report, clocking in at almost 100 pages. This is one of, if not the most extensive report that Mannion puts out every year. There's a lot of great content in it, and we're going to get into that today with two of our guests. I have returning guest, Regina Elwell, Senior Principal Analyst here at Mandiant, and first-time guest, Kirsty Failey, Senior Analyst at Mandiant as well. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So as I mentioned, there is a lot of excellent content in this. And so maybe we'll start off with a very easy question, which is, you know, maybe you're someone who's been reading this report for all the years that we've been putting it out, or maybe you're a first-time reader of this report. Where would you recommend starting? Because there's so much in here. I mean, we've got all the by-the-number stuff at the front, but we have tons of articles in there. You know, some of them touch on geopolitical changes in China and then pivot over to talking about, you know, GPO compromise or, or abuse. So there's something in there for everyone. But where would you recommend folks start with in reading this report? I guess there is no right way to read the report. So um, it is built such that you can pick and choose what your interests are. But it is comprised of metrics based on data from Mandiant's frontline incident response investigations. We have several case studies that provide insights into the most impactful breaches, attacker operations, threat trends, and notable threat groups. And just, I don't know, so whatever tickles your fancy there and going to that first. Well, I think where a lot of people start uh, and maybe where we can kick off the discussion is that that front end, the by the number section. Regina, I know that that's a big part of what you worked on in this report. And I think that the big stat in there everyone always looks at is dwell time. Talk to us a little bit about what we saw this this past reporting period when it comes to dwell time. Yeah, dwell time is a really interesting metric and we break it down in many different ways. We look at that medium dwell time, we look at dwell time distribution, we break it out by investigation type, detection source. So we really like cut and slice and dice it many different ways to try to figure out like what factors are impacting that number. 
The biggest takeaway is that the global median dwell time continues to improve every single year. Like for the, it's improved for the past decade, um, and organizations are now detecting intrusions in three weeks. So like the fastest uh, ever overall. And it's important to like we define dwell time. There's always a little bit of industry confusion because certain people define it different ways. But the way Mandiant defines dwell time is from whenever that intrusion began till the time that the organization is either notified by an external entity that they were compromised or discovers internally, hey, we have a problem. So that time period of that attacker being in the environment and performing their intrusion without that organization knowing about it. And one of the big pieces in here that I think we started tracking it last year. I don't remember if it was in previous iterations of M-Trends, but I, I certainly remember it was in last year's version, which is breaking out these stats to specifically highlight the cases that we responded to that involved ransomware. Because when you're talking about dwell time, that has a, a lot to do with you know, the shaping of this overall number. So can you talk to that a little bit of what that stat looks like broken out from the overall cases we responded to? Yeah, so starting in last year's report, and again, in this year, when you have nearly a quarter of investigations that are involving ransomware, we felt that it was important to break that out as its own category, just because of the nature of ransomware intrusions, which tend to be much faster in nature than traditional espionage cases. So it might be easier, it is easier to detect when the attacker comes and says, hey, we got a problem, like you need to pay me. Like there, there's no intent to stay hidden in the environment. They're just immediately causing destruction uh, so they can get paid. As opposed to a, a more traditional espionage case, they're going to be very quiet. They're in the environment. They're going to try to stay hidden to keep access for extended periods of time rather than drawing attention to themselves. So when you have these two disparate types of intrusions, you want to like separate them out and say, okay, how does that actually impact the dwell time? And so in this year's edition, um, we found that the median dwell time for ransomware related was just five days compared to 36 days for non-ransomware intrusions. So uh, definitely big difference there. Yeah, and we talk about adversary motivation a little bit later in the report, but this, I think, is a really good example of where our overall understanding of what's happening in the threat landscape, the different types of threat activity, shape how we communicate some of that data. Yeah, I think another thing to keep in mind for ransomware in particular um, is that if you know that you're dealing with a financially motivated actor that's potentially ransomware, you have very little time as an organization to react to that and to do something about it before something pretty devastating could happen to your environment. As opposed to an espionage nature, yes, they could be pulling data and there could be something that drastic happens, um, but it's typically at a much slower pace because they are trying to stay hidden in the environment and not draw attention. So definitely organizations have to react to these types of situations completely differently. And that activity can even vary within a set of activity like ransomware, where we see, for example, a group we'll probably talk about a little bit later, Fin12, that puts a higher premium and focus on speed within an, an environment uh, versus some of the others that are fixated a little bit more on data theft. And then the naming and shaming is another means of extortion on the back end. Yeah, different groups take that that type of work and have different 
uh, motivations, like you say, um, but like just their their general MO, Fin12 is all about getting paid fast. And they found that that speed really helps them to get paid um, as opposed to other attackers have found that extorting organizations by using that second layer, um, using data theft as well, and publicly shaming them, that helps them get paid. So they're really adapting to their environments because ultimately both those types of actors just want to get paid. Talk a little bit about the detection by source. You referenced that earlier, but I think that's another key metric when we're thinking about or looking at dwell time. And I think that's also one that people look at, especially the the regional breakdown with that. What did we see this past uh, year? Yeah, so detection by source. Here we're talking about did the organization detect that they have something bad going on uh, internally themselves? Did they figure it out or did an external entity tell them, um, hey, you have a problem? And that could be law enforcement notifying them. That could be one of their vendors that manages their their logs and things like that, going back and saying, hey, like we've noticed you have a problem. You should check this. Or it could be the attacker dropping that ransom note and saying, hey, I'd like to get paid. So I'm going to tell you that you have a problem here. So those types of buckets there. Uh, And then so within dwell time specifically for that, you're looking at uh, 28 days for external notification. So about a month that it's taking external entities for that median there compared to only 18 days for internal detection. Um, So internal detection is faster. Organizations are doing this for that median um, faster than external entities. And so two things to note here. One, external is half the time compared to to last year. So the external notification is much quicker this year for what we're seeing. And that goes to talk to um, increased ability for those uh, external entities to do the detection, but also having the communication mechanisms to then go to organizations and say, hey, you have a problem and like establishing that communication. And then internal, while it is still significantly faster than external, it's actually slower than it was the year before. So in 2020, we noted uh, historic lows of a median dwell time of only 12 days. But then in 2021, that's back up to 18 days. Uh, And this is something that it really isn't um, super unsurprising to us because it was so quick last year that it seems it's normalizing uh, a bit more this year. And there's, of course, a lot of factors that go into all of this, both the internal detection side and external detection side. And part of it could also be explained by the threat activity and the nature of those threats. You know, we, we touched on ransomware, for example, how that is shaping and influencing the overall landscape. I think often people want to see the sort of internal detection source, you know, increasing as a proxy for organization maturity. I think that certainly speaks to at least part of that, but we have to, I think, be careful in interpreting some of these numbers. But maybe also what you touched on there that I found interesting is external detection source going up and the speed of external detection source. Could you in part, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but could you also say that that's maybe tied to improvements around information and intelligence sharing in some contexts? Yeah, I think it would be impossible to say that that wasn't a factor. That definitely has to be part of what it is. Um, I think Law enforcement entities and other um, international organizations are getting better at information sharing and getting that information into the right people's hands to be able to do something about it in a more actionable time frame. Excellent. Driving along further into this report, and there's so much we've got to cover here. Let's, uh, let's talk about the initial infection vector. 
one of the things that was interesting to me in this is that we saw far fewer intrusions uh, utilizing phishing than we had in previous years. And that had, you know, for, for a while been, you know, one of significant initial intrusion vectors. And we still see that. But talk to us a little bit of, of how the that landscape is changing around initial intrusion vectors. Yeah. So for phishing this year, it was only 11% of intrusions where the initial infection vector was identified compared to 23% in 2020. And I think this talks to the maturity of uh, security training of employees to be able to like recognize what is a phishing email to not click on it. It talks to the maturity of technology products to be able to just block phishing emails straight from the beginning. So it's not even reaching that end user. So they don't even get the choice to, to click on that. But I also think you have to look at the, the bigger uh, landscape too. So the second largest initial infection vector was actually supply chain compromise. And so obviously you had the huge solar winds uh, breach with sunburst and all of that. So we had a significant number of intrusions that were that. So that is partially... Uh, one of the reasons, like, if you have more of these investigate more supply chain compromise type investigations in the, your data set, it's going to bring some of the other numbers down just naturally because the pool of investigations that you're looking at is a little bit different. But then the overall top, like, most seen um, initial infection vector where the vector was identified was exploits. We saw it as the top last year, and we saw it again as the top this year. And this year is up to 37%, which is an eight percentage point increase over last year. So significant number of intrusions um, seeing exploits. Yeah, and last year was a banner year for for some uh, some of the more well-known ones, the Microsoft Exchange, SonicWall, Pulse Secure VPNs. Uh, we saw actually a lot of VPN exploits last year. Yeah, even just not for uh, the initial infection vector, exploit activity in general was very high. So in in 30% of all intrusions uh, overall, we saw at least some type of exploit activity. And it just goes to the same, uh, all those exploits that you just named. There were a ton of zero days. Um, there are a lot of identified vulnerabilities um, and adversaries were definitely taking advantage of them. So Kirsty, I want to bring you in on some of this. And I think we'll, we'll probably also return to some of the other aspects of the adversary operations. But talking about some of the threat actors and threat groups themselves, what better place than we have what I think is a great section in the report that we should always do more of, you know, with just talking about how we cluster and group and track threat actors. So can you walk us through what that looks like when we're using yeah. these terms, APT, FIN, and increasingly UNC publicly? What do we mean when we use these terms? Yeah, so there is a fantastic blog post that everyone should read to get better acquainted with the term UNC or uncategorized groups. That is a way that Mandiant has tracked these threat actors in years previous to this. And just recently, we began talking about our notorious UNC groups pretty publicly. So walking through that, you know, Mandiant classifies these threat actors based on a number of things. But what it really boils down to is the observable factors that really come from things like the adversarial infrastructure, the tools and the tradecraft that these adversaries use, right? So these factors basically get clustered into these ungroups, or like I mentioned, uncategorized groups first. Then as we discover all of the new artifacts and through other incidents or proactive collection efforts for a majority of our team members, we start pulling all of these pieces together to grow, to merge, and to even break up some activity sometimes uh, to better understand what those adversaries are doing, how they're doing it, and what they're after. 
And then once these clusters are fully defined or quote unquote tall enough, uh, they can go through a rigorous process of getting graduated into either those APT groups that we all uh, have been familiar with or a FIN group or a financial group that most people, you know, are pretty familiar with that we talk about in, you know, in the public eye. So if you're interested, definitely read through that process, read through that blog. It's very interesting and pulls in a lot of different components that, you know, we can't really talk about in depth right now because we simply just don't have the time. But it's really interesting because when we talk about the UNC groups that we are seeing, you know, in the report, we mentioned that there were a total of 339 UNC groups that were active. Now, when we talk about those other big APT groups, we say, you know, we have six that were active and then we have six FIN groups that were active as well. What is interesting about that is those UNC groups may have some ties to either espionage or financial actors that maybe one day will have enough insights into bringing them up and uh, graduating them into a financial group or a full APT cluster. That was an excellent and well done explanation of what is sometimes the confusing landscape we have. I know we also we mentioned it in there, but there's we still have the, some of the legacy terms like temp. I think I saw conference crew is mentioned in there. So yep. we are trying to do more to standardize that process with those those groups. And, and great point also when you mentioned and I'll use as an example, you know, for example, like the, the Ukraine crisis right now. We're seeing new unks emerge that we can't immediately link them to a known APT group from you know some of the suspected Russian threat actors, say. But quite likely, they may have some connection that at some point we're able to to make. Yeah, definitely. Between uh, like the espionage stuff that we're seeing, um, financial gain, that data theft that we have been hearing about with the naming and shaming sites that ransomware actors have, uh, you know, grown to love, I guess we can say. And then all the way to exploiting all of those major vulnerabilities throughout the year or throughout 2021. Adversaries definitely kept defenders busy this past year. And into this year as well. And we had two graduations last year of UNCs into uh, both both FIN groups, FIN 12 and FIN 13. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah. So basically, we had those very big clusters get graduated, right? FIN 12, Regina talked about them a little bit earlier, where they were a very prolific group where they prioritize speed. One thing that I think uh, is really interesting about FIN 12 is that they were targeting the healthcare industry specifically. Um, That was a big highlighting point of them. So FIN 12 really does move really quickly. And we had a lot of you know, kind of clusters into FIN 12 as we were graduating them. One thing that was really interesting, and I think Regina knows this really well, is that with ransomware specifically, it can be really hard to tie ransomware variants to a specific actor. Because of the overlaps in the tradecraft, what we saw with FIN 12 was that there was a reuse of tradecraft over a number of different ransomware variants or malware families. And through the rigorous process of going through and merging a number of different UNC groups into a new FIN group to graduate them, we identified that FIN 12 was using a number of different ransomware variants, but they really did prioritize the use of Rayuk. Um, And targeting the financial industry during a global pandemic kind of was a really bad move on their part really rude in my in my personal opinion. And when I was a consultant during that time, 
it was a very stressful process, but the defenders here at Mandiant and the intel that we got from our really hard and fast paced collection efforts on that um, threat group really helped us to get one step ahead of those, you know, the, uh, that threat actor and get our uh, response efforts um, in tip top shape to help keep defenders at pace with that threat group. Now, one other interesting aspect of actually, I think their operations tie somewhat into this because they were utilizing Beacon. But malware is another thing that we we focus on here uh, in the report. And maybe unsurprising to folks, we're, we're still seeing Beacon up at the, the front of the pack when it comes to malware that we're seeing utilized by, you know, not just red teams and pen testers, but some of the espionage activity. This was used by um, 2452, some of the more sophisticated threat groups that we track, but then also some of your your fin groups and even lower level criminal unks. So what are, what are, what are some of the, like the wave tops around Beacon in, in particular, but malware in general last year? Yeah, so I think the trend is going to continue throughout the years, but Beacon definitely is a favorite among adversaries. So in the investigations that Mandiant saw in this past year, Adversaries used Beacon in more than a quarter of our investigations, um, three times more than the second most frequent, which was Sunburst. So if if you remember Regina earlier talking about the data set, you know, where we have this different number of in, uh, intrusion vectors being, you know, supply chain where they're specifically uh, targeting Sunburst. We still see, even with that new data set, new kind of pool of data, we still see that Beacon is rising to the top of being a number one favorite. Now, I don't think personally that's going to change. And I think it's become very widely known within the security community that, you know, Beacon will continue to be a favorite. It's almost become a meme at this point. But, you know, it's going to stay relevant as we move through the rest of, you know, our investigations to come. Attackers are just getting more clever with the way that they are able to drop the beacon backdoors with different droppers, which goes into and ties into all of that tradecraft activity and how we're tracking and clustering those threat groups. Yeah, there was a really good blog we did last year. I think it was from Alyssa Raman around Beacon fingerprint, yep. uh, fingerprinting and identification. So we'll include that in the show notes because there was a lot of really good information in this. And as you note, it's not going away and we're probably going to see it again in, in the stats uh, for next year. Yeah, definitely. It's Alyssa Raman, but yeah, she is definitely a Beacon wizard. Um, she breaks out all of the different types of backdoors related to the Beacon malware. Now, Beacon got its name because of its beaconing activity, um, but there are definitely different components to Beacon. And I would highly suggest that anyone unfamiliar with the Beacon malware take a look at that blog because it's very insightful. As a former red teamer, I think she's very, very familiar with the Beacon malware. Excellent. And Alyssa, sorry about mispronouncing your name. One other thing that I thought was interesting here when we talk about malware is the Linux malware that we saw uh, in several examples. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think, especially in the community as well, Mandiant Investigation saw an uptick in malware that was targeting and successfully used on the Linux operating systems. And this really does showcase attackers' willingness and ability to target and operate in different operating system environments, right? We have over the past years talked about their love of the Windows environment, but as we were working through investigations in 2021, so in 2021, we did see an uptick of malware that was targeting the Linux operating system. 
And this really does show the willingness of threat actors to move into different operating systems and start targeting things that we hadn't really seen them previously. This does really go into showing the detection efforts being built out within the Linux environments across the organizations. We also saw you know, a correlation a little bit with the exploits that were announced in the zero days for a number of different applications and hardware devices within 2021, right? A couple of notable groups, though, that I will call out is, you know, UNC2891, who we have seen target specifically the Oracle Solaris operating system. They use their really vast knowledge of the operating system to remain hidden within the environment for a number of years, right? And they have some custom backdoors that target the the authentication modules uh, within Linux. And they definitely are using custom malware to evade detection. So we see that attackers are leveraging different types of tools to remain hidden within the environment, but also making sure that they keep up their ability to move in like within the environment, but also maintain their access through, you know, kind of encrypted comms to also evade detection. And we saw that in 2021, UNC2891 also started targeting things like ATMs for financial gains. And I really think that they take the cake for different types of malware that target Linux specifically. But then also it is of note that there are a number of ransomware operators that are starting to target the Linux operating systems as well. So At this point, ransomware is no longer just the Windows operating system game. So over the next couple of years and in the meantime, uh, I think it would be wise for, you know, defenders of all organizations and all operating systems to start to focus in exactly on logging efforts and making sure that they're able to identify anomalies within any type of environment. It's not just a Windows game. In that group that you mentioned, UNC2891, I think that was the one that had the overlaps with UNC1945 that we note correct, in there, correct. which I thought was a, a very good example when people are curious about, you know, how do we look at potentially merging groups or what are some of the things that we're, we're looking at? That's a great example of walking through some of that thought process analysis where you see a group that maybe is doing some parallel things, has some overlaps in infrastructure or tooling, and, you know, you're trying to make those connections to eventually merge or graduate them. Yep, Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about, and Regina, I want to bring you back in here as well, but the overall, when we look at threat techniques and we're looking at threat actors that are utilizing, you know, off, off the shelf malware, malware available in the underground, publicly available tools, however you want to frame that, living off the land techniques, and then also custom malware. Are there any interesting trends that we see in how threat actors are sort of picking and choosing and maybe at different stage in the operation, how they are going to employ some of these different techniques, or is it sort of just a, a buffet of they'll use what you know is, is most useful to them at the time for any given part of their operation? Well, so the piece of the puzzle that we see is either as it's happening or after the fact looking back in. So it's hard to sometimes say exactly what their reasoning was, but what we do see is committed and motivated adversaries doing what they need to do to move into environments and to obtain their objectives 
and they will use tools that are available there in the environment to do that job. Why would they create their own custom tool or do something if the environment says, oh, well, I can use PowerShell here, I can use a system service, I can use RDP to move throughout the environment. Why do I need something fancy if the victim organization allows this per normal operating? But then in environments where maybe they do need something custom, they can't get to what they're looking for to reach their end objective solely using these tools. We see them roll custom tools to to get that. So we definitely see a balance of that. When we break down the malware numbers, um, it, it does seem definitely swayed to more custom tools than what's publicly available. But keep in mind, that's looking at specifically the code family. So in cases where Beacon is used in well over a quarter of investigations, that's only counted once in that that metric. Um, So we definitely see tons of custom malware and a lot of variety there, but the same public tools are used over and over and over again. So like that contextual information is definitely important there. So then when you get into more like the technique side rather than malware specific, MITRE ATT&CK, um, that framework has been a really good community tool to be able to start classifying and categorizing these types of tactics and techniques used by threat actors and something that Mandiant has been committed to, to, to map to the MITRE ATT&CK framework to be able to say, uh, translate the techniques and the ways that we track internally to say, okay, this is the MITRE ATT&CK equivalent. And so um, MITRE ATT&CK is now on V10. They'll move to V11 um, at the end of this month. And in the past year, Mandiant has mapped an additional 300 of our techniques. So we have over 2,100 techniques that we track internally mapped back to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And so like all of our subsequent findings that are associated with this then get mapped by proxy through to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And so this helps us. The reason we provide metrics on this is to provide contextual information to organizations. Um, so every organization has to make security decisions um, and to prioritize that, those decisions on what to implement, how to implement that. And we think it's very important that the likelihood of a specific technique actually being used in an intrusion uh, should impact that decision-making process. Um, so if we can find provide data on the actual prevalence of techniques and how often we see them, what how we see them in specific recent intr- intrusions, so everything that we've investigated for the, that previous time period, those decision makers can then be better equipped um, to make intelligent security decisions. So why am I focusing on this one particular technique that rarely ever happens versus this other technique that's very prevalent, um, that is almost like guaranteed to, to be used in an intrusion? Like that's what I should be protecting against. Maybe not focusing on maybe the harder thing that is like one a bazillion, like actually going to be seen. So for the data for 2021, uh, we saw that 43% of the techniques that we saw observed, so 30% of all techniques were seen in more than 5% of intrusions compared to 37% of techniques that were observed in 2020. 
So that was an increase of uh, six percentage points. Big, uh, like so, not a huge jump, but definitely a a a, a big jump, and it should be draw atten- draw attention to. Uh, and we definitely recommend prioritizing again implementing those security measures that are going to protect against these most commonly used techniques over something with a much lower prevalence. And then when we actually look at okay, what are the most prevalent techniques that we're looking at? We're looking at those that obfuscation, um, those use of those available things in the environment that we already t- talked about. So specific web protocols, um, using PowerShell, using system services, using these things in the environment that are already there. So how do you balance like between like the convenience and the accessibility to make your own organization run like, without annoying your employees? Like, so they can just get their job done while also making it difficult for adversaries. Um, so it's a it's really hard security challenge um, that companies have to face. And you could even further refine that with intelligence. You know, for, for example, you have a particular concern around Chinese espionage threat actors. You could overlay the, the most commonly used techniques uh, for them or ransomware groups hitting your industry. If there's specific ones that you think, you know, there's a, there's a greater risk or likelihood that you see them, you know, you could overlay those specific techniques from that, those specific groups to kind of use MITRE in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that goes to like, like made an advantage and being able to pull up like the profiles of specific groups that you're interested in and specific groups that are targeting your company's industry and kind of pare it down even further. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great plug for many advantage. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, anything, you know, in, in your work putting together this report, if there's anything that was especially surprising or stood out to you. But first, I'm curious if in all the activity that you're a part of or you helped respond to this past year or just observed, if there's any particular threat actors, UNCs, APTs, FINs, that is like your favorite group of this last year. Yeah. So in the past year, my day job has moved into like more of our many archaeology and uh, doing more of that merging and developing our deep dive process of like, how do we fully interrogate and investigate a particular group so that it can be then a candidate for graduation and things of that nature. And so like, through examining that process, like I, I would be remiss not to mention Fen 12. Like I know we've mentioned him a couple of times on this podcast already, um, but that graduation from UNC 1878 is huge. Like Fen 12, it's very prolific, like one of the most prolific. Like if you exclude uh, solar winds, it was the most prolific actor during 2021. So that just the sheer volume is impressive. And then because we had over two dozen investigations that involved FIN12 specifically, there's a great article in MTrends that talks about uh, FIN12. So that provides insights on like how we've seen them partner with other groups for initial access. Um, So most notably partnering with um, TrickBot affiliated threat actors, how fast FIN12 intrusions are. So like going back to that dwell time, specifically when you break that down for FIN12, it's just very impressive that while ransomware, like as a whole, those investigations are five days, like FIN12 is more like two days. Like it's, it really shows that organizations don't have much time to react um, once an intrusion begins. But if they have things like Mandiant Intelligence involved and they know what those TTPs are, they can go look for these things that as soon as they get triggers that say, hey, this is potentially a FIN12 investigation, you need to act immediately versus like if you had 
signs for some other group. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I've just been super impressed with, I can't, it's hard to say you're impressed with uh, an adversary, but but, <laughs> but definitely am. Like, it, it's just very quick. It, it is almost professional in some level, just how they operate. And if you really are interested, um, the M-Trends article is, is really good, but uh, there are three different iterations of like different stages for the spooky Ryuki talks. So that's what got, uh, those were 1878, Unks 1878, and those got graduated into Fin 12. Uh, but Vanton and Aaron Stevens do an amazing job of walking through all their TTPs and operations. So awesome things to go check out if you want more on Fin 12. Excellent. What about you, Kirsty? Yeah. So for me, I think the winner goes to APT 41. So it's not new that APT 41 has set their sights on exploitation of vulnerabilities. But given the vast amount of vulnerabilities in 2021, APT 41 did kind of a really interesting thing. So in there's a great article in M Trends as well, but just from my purview, APT41 exploits these vulnerabilities and then they do something, right? From a defender's perspective, uh, as soon as you hear about a zero day that's being actively exploited, your mind immediately goes to, oh, great, another coin mining investigation. But APT41 really did use the use that coin mining activity to kind of lay low and almost hide in plain sight. So they've already been very sophisticated in their operations. They they were very interesting to me in the very beginning because of their dual sourcing of, um, you know, that espionage stuff as well as their financial gain activities. But really, it it's really interesting that the way that APT41 maintains their access as well as, you know, hides under the radar and really does capitalize on the lack of log retention within an environment. It is pretty interesting to see them move through environments and the way that defenders are able to gather different information, specifically, you know, the Windows server, user access logging database um, to follow those attackers through the environment as logs are, um, you know, kind of expiring with those uh, within those environments because of that crypto mining activity. It's pretty interesting. But, you know, I could talk about APT41 all day long. There's some fantastic blogs on the Mandiant website from Dan Perez and Sarah Jones and the rest of the team that, you know, if you're really interested in APT41, go check them out. But I think we're running out of time for uh, this podcast, so I won't go into it anymore. I was going to say, our, our show notes are already going to be maxed up. But yeah, the Double Dragon <laughs> Report from a couple of years ago uh, when we did the graduation goes back into some of the history, going back to the the WinNTI days, or Winty, if you're yep. one of those people that pronounces it that way. But um, yeah, very fascinating, very fascinating history of, of a threat actor. We are close to the time and my computer's about to die. So Wrapping up, yeah, just things that you found um, maybe interesting or surprising from putting together this report and then takeaways, you know, again, there's so much in here, depending on, you know, what your your org role is or what you're looking to get out of it. I'm sure there's something for you, but what are some of the particular things that you think are noteworthy from this year's report? Yeah, so things that were pretty surprising for me were 
really the stats on ransomware. So we did see that little dip in ransomware related incidents. Now, as we know, ransomware is a topic that has dominated InfoSec and mainstream news outlets over the years. But what I think that this number shows is that while ransomware is still very prominent in all industries, really, adversaries are still not afraid to keep doing what they do best, right? So it's it's not safe to say that ransomware is the main top threat. Maybe it is for um, organizations that cannot respond as quickly to those destructive attacks. It will continue to be on the rise. But those adversaries that are doing those sophisticated actions and laying low are still out there profiting off of everything that they're doing. The other thing is, you know, the number of tracked malware for 2021. Mandiant observed just about 4% of malware families being used in 10 or more investigations of intrusions, while 81% of those malware families were observed in only one or two intrusions. So that's pretty drastic. That's a pretty drastic jump there. But I think, you know, in the report, we cover a lot of this stuff. um, And I'm sure that everyone will find something surprising after they read it. Yeah. And so just kind of to wrap up from there and kind of echo some of Kirstie's statements there is so whether you're looking at the techniques that they leverage or the malware that they choose, uh, adversaries are demonstrating a willingness to move their objective forward. Um, to, to, to continue that intrusion until they a- achieve whatever they're going after. Um, so they're taking advantage of what's available in the environment. They're using publicly a- a- available tools and malware to move their intrusions forward. Um, they're developing malware as required. And so they continue to be willing to, to do what's necessary to reach their objective. Excellent. Well, this is, again, you know, a report that is shaped and based off of our own observations of, of events and incidents we responded to this last year, but I think does a lot to really add to the discussion in the security landscape about what's happening, what things are changing, how they're improving, or in some cases, getting worse, I guess, in some areas. But I think there's a lot, you know, a lot of work, obviously, that went into this. So congratulations to both of you and, and the other team members that I know have been putting in a lot of hours to get this report out. And before we close out, one other thing I should mention, registration is open for the upcoming M Trends Virtual Summit. Uh, this will be on Wednesday, April 27th. This will be an event that will touch on a variety of the things that we talked about here, but do a deeper dive through a series of webinars about some of the topics pulled from this year's report. Uh, and please go check out mandiatcom slash M trends to learn more. Again, we'll include all those links in the show notes. And thank you to Regina and Kirstie.